pray for the preacher. <laughs> Is this your Bible? No. no. In case I lose mine, I'll use that one. Good morning. It's good to see you and be with you. And on behalf of... You're just going to have to live with my crooked tie. Now, now, how I know it's crooked is because my wife always tells me, like this, I get tired of that, so I hope it doesn't bother you. If you're OCD about it, turn the other way or something. Right. Um, but all that to say, from Folsom, uh, a word of thanks and very, great, very grateful for your support as a church for us over there. We just finished, we're coming up on the last day of January, will be our second full year of meeting on Sunday uh, We don't meet in the mornings yet, but um, second full year of meeting together on Sundays, and so we're thankful for that. We're still looking for a facility that we can call our own, much like yourselves here. There's, um, I mean, you can do what you want here, but where we are, we're subleasing from another church, and that has its challenges. We're very blessed by them, and we thank the Lord for it, but we would like to have our own place where we can do our own thing the way we want to do it, so... If you think of us, if you can't sleep at night, pray for us that way, would you, please? And uh, again, we're just very thankful of the like-mindedness and the support and love that we receive um, from many churches around, but particularly this one. So we're very grateful. And brother, thank you for always thinking of me and praying for me and opportunities to speak here. I'm very grateful, seriously. And so with that... Would you open your Bibles to Paul's Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians, chapter 3. Of course, the Apostle Paul wrote this in his first Roman imprisonment, probably in the early 60s, some 30 years after his conversion. This is the book of Philippians, chapter 3. I wonder if you can follow along as I read from verse 12 through 16. A great, great passage here. The Spirit moved the Apostle to pen these words. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to that which lies ahead, I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Now from there you can see the main thrust is pressing on. The Apostle Paul is exhorting his readers to press on much like a good coach would. He uses words here actually from the athletic world of the day, from the Olympic Games of the day. These are certain words that he uses here to exhort these readers to press on. And in the New Testament, as you know that well enough, Paul often compares the Christian life with a race and the Christian to an Olympic runner. 
He obviously was impressed by the sacrifice and effort an athlete was willing to make in order to win. He, he obviously witnessed these kind of events. And he saw the natural parallels, as we do as well, right, of living the Christian life and running a race. In fact, if you remember 1 Corinthians 9, he put it like this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. How does he know that? Because he watched them. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way is not without aim. I box in such a way is not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Very clearly, he has observed the sporting events and uses as a parallel the Christian life. The Christian life is like a sporting event, like a race. And you press on. Very similar, the writer of Hebrews. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance (coughs) and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us, now listen, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So there's another author in the New Testament that equates the Christian life with an endurance race, with a race that takes this tenacity. It takes sacrifice to press on, to win this race. As we come to our passage in Philippians 3, we learn from the Apostle Paul that we are in a race. And therefore, I titled this, This is no time to rest. This is no time to rest. Christian, it's no time to take a break or disengage. No, it is time actually to press on. This is no time for a break. That's contrary to a lot of modern authors. You go to your favorite Christian bookstore and it's all about you taking care of yourself and boundaries and all these things. Paul's boundary was heaven. That was his goal. And he says, it's no time to rest, Christian, because you're in a race. Now, before you think I've wigged out, I'm aware that Scripture does allow for resting. So let's put it in a a context here. When I say no time for rest, God rested on the seventh day after six days of creating in Genesis 1, right? And this is the basis of the fourth commandment that he gave to Israel in Exodus 20 when he said to them, you must do your work in six days and rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Even our Lord Jesus in the Gospels, he invited his weary disciples to come away from the crowds to take a break. So resting from your work, taking a vacation with your family, that is all good and necessary. That is not what Paul's talking about, and it's not what I'm talking about when I say it's no time to rest. Okay? Think of some things that you shouldn't rest from, for instance. How about breathing? You don't want to take any breaks from breathing, right? Um, you don't want to take breaks from drinking water. 
You don't want to rest from loving and serving your spouse and your family. You don't want to rest from loving God and loving your neighbor. You don't want to rest from dealing with your own sin. You see, so there are things you shouldn't rest from, but there are certainly things that God says you can rest from. The Apostle Paul is exhorting us, this is no time to rest. No time to rest. In what context is that? Well, look at, in our, in our text here, Paul's concerned that the readers not grow spiritually complacent or lazy or inactive as though they had already run the race. As though the race was finished, you see. He exhorts them to give their maximum effort because the race is still in progress. You know how he knows that? They're still breathing. That's how I know it. You're still in the race because you're still breathing. You see, it's not finished. And he will exhort us, exhort them, his readers, to press on by using himself as the pattern to follow. Okay? The key to this passage is verse 14. Draw your eyes there. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what he's talking about. This, so his exhortation comes by following in his steps. To follow him in this pressing on toward the goal. Now, our text finds itself in a bigger context. And to come to a clearer understanding of what Paul's exhorting, we need to put it in its context that takes us back to chapter 3, verse 2. Look at this. is a very important verse here. It says, Beware of the dogs, 3-2. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Paul's in prison, if you remember, or at least in chains, and in Rome. This is Philippi in Macedonia area. Across from Ephesus. He's writing to them to warn them that there are false teachers around, there are false professors of Christians who are promoting a works righteousness. Christ is not fully sufficient. He's good. He gets you in the door, but you must keep obeying God in order to be right before God. You must keep the law of Moses. It's the Galatian heresies, the Galatian um, problem, which is all of this. Christ dying on the cross is not enough to make you righteous before God. You must add your obedience. You must add your personal adherence to the law of Moses in order to be right with God. These are the false circumcision. These are the Judaizers that have come into Philippi. Now, they were guilty of putting confidence in their flesh. Confidence in their own efforts, in their own abilities, in their own prominence, in their own position, maybe even their own pedigree. They were not fully trusting in Christ. They were trusting in their selves and in their obedience. The Apostle Paul, in, our, in, our, in this context, beginning in verses 4 and following, right? the Apostle Paul uses his personal testimony to combat this error of justification by works. Because if you remember, and as he reminds us in 4, 5, and 6, he was a self-righteous Jew who trusted in himself. He trusted in his own pedigree, his own efforts, verses 4 through 6. But on the road to Damascus, as you know well, everything changed. In fact, the world began to change. Because on the road to Damascus, if you remember, he met the Lord Jesus Christ 
Look at verse 7, please, of Philippians 3. This is just context working up. You see it starts with but. But whatever things were gained to me... That's mentioning the previous verses. Those things he was trusting in for being right before God. Those religious efforts he was making in 5 and 6. Verse 7 says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things, those things I have. Notice in verse 7, I have counted. Notice the tense of the counted. It's past. I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So verses 5 and 6, and those religious efforts he was making and the confidence that he had in his own flesh on why God should receive him into heaven. And why that's so crucial, beloved, is every single one of us have a tendency toward works righteousness. Every, that's why works righteous systems are so powerful because they have a lot of ready, people ready to receive that information. We would rather trust in ourselves than in Jesus Christ whom we've never seen. That's why it's not faith. It's me. You're, you're, taking, you're taking the reins in your hands for your eternal destiny because you do not trust Jesus Christ. Well, you might give him one rein, but you got the other one. That's not trusting Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. He says in verse 7, But those things that I counted in, I have counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. Past tense. Look at verse 8. Notice the change in tense. More than that, I count. What tense? Speak to me. Present tense. So seven's past. Eight is now present. I presently, right now, am counting all things to be lost. What caused such a radical transformation in his accounting? In verse 8, look at what it says. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what radically changed his calculation and his evaluation. Think of how much it takes, beloved. Please listen to this. Think how much it takes to change your thought on something that's so precious to you that you have been resting in for years. How much would it take to change you? To where you no longer see it as beneficial. You actually see it for what it is. It's detrimental. And you cast an oversight. How much glory must it take to transform that thinking? How much glory is the resurrected Jesus Christ? Verse 8. When Paul saw, learned Jesus Christ on the Damascus road. And subsequently after Nothing compared to knowing Him. And when things came in to impede His walk, by grace He took it and threw it overboard. Think of this. If you're on a ship going across the ocean, and in the middle of that ocean a storm hits, and that ship starts to sink, and you got about, I don't know, a million dollars worth of gold coins, are you going to strap that around your neck and jump overboard and swim to save your life? How good is that gold to you when you're... When the water's up here in your nose, you're going to cut the cord and say, Hasta la vista, baby, I'm swimming that way. Right? That's what Paul... What, what glory came that eclipsed the glory of his self-righteous works was the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today as a born-again person, you have glimpsed that glory because it radically changed you. 
You have tasted of the Lord and found Him to be good. Have you not? If not, what are you doing here? Right? What What are you doing here if you have not tasted of You see, this is Paul saying here in Philippians. He says, these self-righteous people who are coming with a false gospel of works righteousness is not from God. And he says to them, remember me. Because how I, 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 I is repeated from verse 7 down through verse 17. I, I, I. He says, remember me. Remember me. The one who brought you the gospel years ago in Acts 16. Remember me. I didn't come promoting me and the law of Moses. I came promoting a resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. Look to Christ. This is what he says here. This is so glorious. Now, get this, please. I have to move on fast, faster than I would like. Because um, I really want to preach verse 8, but that's not why I'm here. Look at verse... <laughs> I count all things <laughs> lost to be in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Follow on now, verse 8. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but... What does your text say, verse 8? Rubbish. It's a wonderful Greek term. Scubala. Even sounds messy, doesn't it? It's the stuff you step on when you go to your uncle's farm. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's excrement. It's manure. It's, It's used of... Carcasses of dead animals. I don't find a lot of value in that. I'm not a crow. Right? I'm not a buzzard. I don't find a lot of value in carcasses. Roadkill. Do you see what Paul's saying? I count everything that comes into competition with knowing Christ as roadkill. Whatever it is. And it could be good stuff. Relationship. Didn't Jesus say somewhere, if you if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me? Something like that, Matthew 10. Jesus is to have first place. And when you see him like Paul has, you don't have any problem with that. <laughs> you don't have any problem with that. But look at how it finishes in verse 8. You count them as rubbish for what purpose? Do you see the last phrase? Verse 8. See the last phrase? So that, at the purpose clause, I may what? Gain Christ. He counts everything as scubala. So it doesn't impede him gaining Christ. So whatever you... Think of this. If you don't count something that comes into your life as scubala compared to knowing Christ, it's going to impede your gaining Christ. You see? You only will gain Christ when you see everything else as scubala. And the only way you're going to see anything as scubala is because God has come into your life and went and gave you faith to see Christ for who He is. Okay. So the, the end of verse 8, so that I may gain Christ. Okay, now everything is scubala. Look at verse 9, the first part. And... I may be found in him. So there's two results from counting everything as lost for the sake of Christ. Is I may gain him. Verse 9. That I may be found in him. The rest of verse 9 explains what being found in him means. 
then he returns to the purpose in verse 10, the third purpose that Paul states as to why he counts everything as scubala, gain Christ, maybe found in Christ, and then verse 10 says what? That I may what? That I may know Him. And as you know from studies, I'm sure, the word know there is not intellectual only. It is an experiential knowledge. Husband and wife kind of stuff. Yes, I know about my wife intellectually, but I know her personally. I've experienced her. This is the word here, to know. This is what verse 8 says, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. It's not knowing about Christ Jesus. It's knowing Him intimately, personally. This man here is your spouse? Yeah. Right? You knew each other when you said, I do. Did it stop there? No, you're growing in your knowledge of each other, right? It's like, wow, if I'd known he was like this, I probably would have just kept running. But no, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just seeing if you're awake. <laughs> right? Do you see? Paul is saying, and this man here would be saying, that if, if anything came in between you that kept you from growing in your intimate, personal experience of her, he would take that and throw it overboard. So that your eyes are gazing on her without any interruption or eclipse. Yeah? This is what Paul's saying. Is that how you see Jesus Christ? Is that how you know Jesus Christ? Or is it just mental assent? Is it just in your mind? That ain't far enough. It's got to get into your soul and the fabric of your being and into your intercellular parts of your body. Because that's the only way you're going to say no to everything else. And yes to Christ. So Paul says, to counter the, the works righteousness, he says, remember my experience. And this is not super Christian, this is normal Christian, by the way. Verses 7, 8, 9, 10. Okay. That I may know him. By the way, what am I done? I'm sorry. Okay. Um, verse 10. That I may know him personally, intimately. Okay. But what does he mean? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. The rest of verse 10 and 11, look at what it says. And the power of his resurrection. I want to know him intimately in the power of his resurrection. Stop right there. The power of his resurrection. The dunamis of his empty tomb. The power possessed by Christ... To raise his own dead body from the ground. Scripture tells us, Father, the Spirit, and the Son raise Christ from the dead. Okay? I'm going to focus on Christ right here. To know Him in the power of His resurrection. The power that gave life to a body that was lifeless. is to know Christ intimately, is to know that power to some degree. And that's what you're growing in as you walk with Him. Have you experienced the power of His resurrection? 
In what context? Look at the next phrase in verse 10. And the fellowship of His sufferings. When will you experience the power of His resurrection is in the koinonia of His sufferings. His sufferings. When you are suffering for being righteous. When you are suffering for proclaiming His name. When you are suffering for identifying with Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. Yes. And then the world hates you. We don't go run and hide. We press on. No time to rest. No time to rest. Look at verse 10. To know Him intimately is to know the power that is surging in your inner body, which is the power of His resurrection, the power that gave Him life. In what context? In the, in the fellowshipping, sharing, in His sufferings. In verse 10, what does it result in in your life? What's it doing actively? In verse 10, when you experience His power in the context of suffering. Conformity to what? To His death. To the death of Christ. You are right now, Christian... Because remember, he who began the good work is going to complete it. Philippians said somewhere. One six. You are right now being conformed. Passively. See, this is the power that raised Christ is active in your life. When you join in the suffering of Christ, he is making you like him in his death. How's that? Obedience to the point of death. Not fighting back. Not reviling when I'm reviled. It's submissive to Him in the midst of suffering. For His name's sake. It takes the power of the resurrection to keep you and I on the straight and narrow when we're being hated. This is what it means to know Christ intimately. You enter into His suffering. You enter into His, how He lived and, and how He was faithful to God in the midst of the bombardment is because of the power of God surging in your body. Verse 11. And somehow, and this is interesting, but it's, I think it's not that He doubts that He's going to attain resurrection. It's just a way of saying that he doesn't want to be too confident or too arrogant about it. But it's a way of saying that this conformity to his death is going to end up in the resurrection. Verse 11. That I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay? All right. Verse 12. <laughs> Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained. So, so you see the context here? He's, he's, he's refuted the self-righteous... Gospel of justification by works, by his own experience of coming to Christ and counting everything as lost, that he might know him intimately, has nothing to do with the works righteousness, has everything to do with yielded submission, trust in Christ. Verse 12 then says it like this. He's going to say to the Philippians, you haven't arrived, press on, 
And if you need, if you, in order to press on the way Paul is saying, you must know yourself and you must know why you were saved. What about yourself? Look at verse 12. Again, notice the first person, personal pronoun, I. Not that I have already obtained. Well, in the context, you back up to verse 11. Obtain what? Resurrection. Now, remember, it's been 30 years since he was saved. It's probably been 10 years since he's laid eyes on these people. He's been in chains probably five years. It was a couple years before that that he saw these people. So it could be seven to ten years since they laid eyes on this man. And he writes to them and says, I have not obtained. I haven't been resurrected to glory yet. And remember, he's refuting false teachers who apparently were teaching, not only could you be justified by your works, you could be perfected by your works. Because look at the second half of verse 12 in the first part there. He says, not that I've already obtained or have what? Already become perfect. Why does he have to say that? False teachers were saying, by your own efforts, you could reach a point of perfection. Now, I doubt anybody here is going to be tempted in that Wesleyan perfectionism. Because if you're married, <laughs> I'll just talk to your spouse. But um, like me, my wife would never be fooled into thinking that I was perfect. Um, but you know what? We might be smug enough and content with where I am with Christ that I, that I live practically as though I am perfect. You see what I'm saying? No need to carry on. No need to press on. I've already, I'm, I'm satisfied with where I am with Christ. I don't need to learn anymore. I don't need to suffer anymore. I don't need to, to read anymore. I don't need to pray anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied. And that's the danger. So we might not be guilty of saying that we have reached perfection, but we can get to where we act practically like we have by being content. So then, Paul, the great apostle, says, I have not become perfect. The word perfect is the word for finished Complete, whole, mature. Context would tell us, but it has the idea of maturity. Okay? I haven't become fully mature yet. The great apostle writing to correct perfectionism says, Hey, guys, remember me? I'm not even perfect yet. I think that would rebuke somebody in Philippi, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh, wow. And I'm sure there was people in Philippi who were falling prey to the false teaching. And Paul says, remember me. I have not become perfect yet. And since he hasn't become perfect, right? he, he has self-evaluation. He knows himself. And he's honest. And what does it motivate him to do? Second half of verse 12. But I press on. I press on. Great word. It's an, it's an energetic word. It has sweat involved in it. Sometimes blood. It is, a, it, is a, it is a word that's translated to chase. It's a word that's translated in chapter 3. Look at verse, look at verse 6 of 3. Philippians 3, 6. What word do you think is, is it? Zeal. 
how is his zeal shown? To be a persecutor. That's the word press on. Same word. It means to hunt, to chase, to pursue, to persecute. What Paul's saying in verse 12 is the one is the one who was once the persecutor has been persecuted by Christ in the base sense of the word. He chases Christ. Verse 12, I press on, present tense, I continually, ongoing, press on, chase after, pursue. Now he doesn't put it, he doesn't put an object on it, but look at how he finishes that sentence. This is fascinating. I press on so that, purpose, I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Oh, that's good. The word laid hold of means to reach up and grab. I'm an Oakland Raider fan, so this is hard for me to say, but you remember Dwight Clark and the 49ers? And Joe Montana threw a pass that he thought was going to go into the bay. But Dwight Clark reached up and what? He, he caught it, right? That's this word apprehend. It's to reach up, grab, and bring down like a good receiver into your possession. That's katalabano. That's what this word is. It's used negatively when someone goes and arrests somebody. Apprehend them. Grabs them and brings them in for possession. Paul says, I am pressing on always, continually... So that I may apprehend, grab hold of, arrest that for which Christ apprehended me. So Paul is saying, my life is taken up with chasing after that very thing that Christ saved me for. When was Paul apprehended by Christ? Damascus Road, Acts 9. Knocked him off his horse. The persecutor of Christ. The hunter. Hunted. And the Lord who hunted the hunter did not seek his demise, but his salvation. And now Paul, in verse 12, instead of persecuting Christ to destroy, he's pressing on after Christ to know him more. You think God changes people? You think God changes your soul and your outlook and your mind? He changes your value system? This is sovereign grace in massive display. The hunter is now hunted and now he's hunting Christ to apprehend him. And notice in verse 12, the second half of verse 12, for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. He wants to pursue that which Christ pursued him for. So Christ has an object in pursuing Paul. And that's what Paul's pursuing. Okay, look at verse 13. He uses the word brethren. He probably feels that's needed. That's a family word. So that it's not too harsh. He's not pushing them away. He says, hey, brothers, stay with me, brothers. <laughs> Verse 13. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. He's reiterating. 
Isn't that, why does he feel the need to do this? Because of the false teachers. Saying that you can. Be like us. They probably said, be perfect like us. Paul says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Again, he knows himself. If you and I are going to run this race that we're being exhorted to run, we must first know ourselves and realize that we have not arrived. There's still work to be done. Every good husband says that to his wife. Give me a break. God's still working on me. You're supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> Notice now, please, the word regard. I'm a word guy because just the words are fascinating to me. This, this word regard is it, it, it comes from the word legitsomai, which means logic, and it comes from careful calculation. When Paul says, I do not regard, he's emphasizing the time it, he took and the carefulness by which he did the calculation on his own walk with Christ. He spent time looking at himself, comparing himself, I'm sure, to the gospel, comparing himself to Christ. And he says, I'm not there yet. I do not regard myself as having apprehended that for which Christ apprehended me. I haven't arrived. But look what he says. As a result of this calculation of himself, but one thing I do. He was about one thing. His life was taken up with this one thing. We sang about it, I think, today. Philippians 1.21 To live is Christ and to die is what? Gain? How can dying be gaining? Is with when Christ is your goal. Life is Christ. Dying is gain. Dying is to have Christ. He's one thing I do. Paul was so gripped and so taken up because he was apprehended by Christ as you have been. And you have tasted of the Lord and you have been given glimpses from the Word of God in your soul. From the eye of faith you have seen the glories of Christ. And it has gripped you and stunned your soul to which you say, I want nothing but Him. I have not attained yet. I have not apprehended Him yet. I have not come to full grips of the full thing of which God has in store for me. The perfect in verse 12. So one thing I do, he says, look at now. Verse 13. Forgetting what lies ahead and reaching forward to what, or what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Because of what Christ has done in this man, and he knows he hasn't arrived, he's got one singularity pursuit of his life, and it consists of this I don't pay attention to where I've been. 
I don't look back at past failures, past things I trusted in, or even past achievements. How many Olympic runners do you see running like this? Right? He ain't going to finish. Paul says, I'm taken up with this one thing, and that consists of this. I forget what's behind me. I disregard it as, as irrelevant. And while I'm doing that, because it's a present tense, I am at the same time stretching out in verse 13. He says, reaching forward to what lies ahead. And the word reaching forward is a tense word. It's a stretching out. It's actually an, an Olympic word. So Paul's obviously seen an Olympic runners reaching, stretching for the tape or whatever they strung across. And Paul says, that's how I run. That's how I do. I'm not perfect yet. Christ saved me for a reason and I haven't gotten there yet. And so I'm reaching, stretching forward. He says in verse 13. And that brings us to the climax and the hub and the the clutch of this text. Verse 14. And he says there, I press on toward the goal. That same word, press on, I persecute, I chase, I go after. It's a present tense. I continually go after. But he adds some words here to show emphasis in a picture in verse 14. He says, I am pressing on. I am chasing after. My life is taken up with this one thing. Is I'm going toward the goal. The word toward, it has the idea of bearing down upon. It's very picturesque in this first readers. Paul says, I am chasing and running half hard after. And I'm gaining ground. I'm going on toward. I'm going down. I'm reaching for the tape and it's getting closer. And he says, reaching toward the goal, the finish line. But he's not running just to finish. What does he expect in verse 14 when he finishes? What is the motivation to run the race? Speak to me, verse 14. The prize. We keep score. (laughs) Don't put your kids in sports and don't keep score. No way, man. What's the motivation? I want that trophy, dude. Right? And I'm going to battle you for it. (laughs) This is what Paul's saying. There's a prize, Christian. He knows what the prize is, too, by the way. Notice, I press on, continually chasing after, bearing down on the goal for the prize. The prize, in verse 14, which is taken up consists of, notice in 14, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize expected is contained in the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the upward call of God? Notice the direction. Upward. This is not a call to ministry or a call to specific doings for God. This is the call that goes out to every single Christian in the gospel. This is the one hope of the gospel calling. This is the call upward. This is the call that goes to everyone who believes the gospel. This is what you believed. That you believed that God had a call to reach glory. Did you not say... I? Those who believe have eternal life. Did did you not expect that when someone shared you the gospel, taught you the gospel? Or is this your best life now? If this is your best life now, I'm going back to drinking. This is not your best life now. 
This could be your worst life now. But the life that's coming is the prize of the upward call of God, dude. Right? So we press on because we believe there is a prize. And we know what the prize is. And it's in the upward call, the heavenly call of God to you, Christian, that God has a special call, and that is to reach glory. This is what Paul knew. And he knew he had not arrived. He hadn't come to full maturity in knowing Christ Jesus. So he's pressing on. He's running hard. He's like Mr. Bolt from Jamaica, man. That dude could run, right? He, Paul is, is pressing on like that. He's running hard for the goal. Because he knows the prize. It's Christ Jesus. The one whom he's already experienced to some degree. The one whom he's tasted here and now. Amen? And let me tell you this. Only those who have experienced Him here and now and only those who have tasted Him here and now are the ones who are going to pursue Him to the next level. Because no one seeks for God, says Romans 3. No pagan seeks for God until God apprehends them and changes their soul. Amen? You show forth, beloved... That you have tasted and you do know what the prize is by how you run. Amen? By how you run. I can tell, man. Look at that person. Get out. That person knows what the prize is. Now, this, this, I, this, listen, listen to some of these verses and then I'll leave you alone. As hard as that is for me. Second Corinthians 4. Just listen to these. I'm going to go as fast as I can. For God said, light shall shine out of darkness. He's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's all of us here, you see. Paul is chasing after Jesus Christ after conversion to know Him deeper and better. He spends his Christian life pursuing Christ to grow in his personal knowledge of him. That's what 3.8 told us, right? All things are being counted right now as loss. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.17, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some glorious, glorious... In this upward call which is the prize. Listen to these passages. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Ephesians 4.4 That which is true of every true believer in the body of Christ is that you were called with one hope of your calling. That's heavenly. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 Listen to this. It was for this He called you through our gospel. For what reason? Listen to this. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel call to, to whom you're preaching is a call to eternal glory. You see, that's to everyone who believes in this gospel. It's to gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory that the Father says I don't share with anybody. He shared with His Son. 
and he'll share with those who belong to his son. The high, priest, high priestly prayer. Glory awaits us and it's in the call. It's the prize of the upward call. To be glorified like Christ. It's to be like Christ. It's to be with Christ Himself. Jesus is the perfect template of which He's the prototype of the prize, you see, of what we're pursuing after. Listen to Philippians 3.21. He says that Christ, who we wait to come from heaven, He will transform, listen now, the body of our humble state into conformity with with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has. We will be conformed with the body of His glory. Have you ever seen the body of His glory? Yes, you have. Matthew 17, Revelation 1. The the, the magnificent, triumphant, resurrected, glorified Son of God. He is no longer in His humiliation. He is now in His exaltation. And I will be made like the exalted Christ. Get that in your brain, beloved. That is the prize of the upward call. And if you believe that, you will be pressing on, man, stretching for the tape. Amen? Amen. I got more, and then I'll be done. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. The resurrection chapter. Glorious passage. I love it. Just as. Language is everything, man. Listen to this. Just as. That means in the same way. We have born already the image of the earthy. First Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Pretty cool promise. That's the prize of the upward call. You will look like the resurrected, glorified Jesus in your physical body. Dude. First Corinthians 3, or First John 3, listen to this, First John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. Fact. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be what? Like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. We will see Christ just as He is and we will be changed into that image. That's the prize. I got more. Come on. 1 Peter 5, 10. After you have suffered for a little while, might be your whole earthly life, but compared to eternity, it's a little while. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ. It's the sovereign call of God that you be in glory with Christ like Christ. Listen to this one. I know you know this one. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Yeah? What purpose is that, Paul? I'm glad you asked, because look and listen to the rest of this. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son predestined to be conformed, made in the likeness of His Son. For what reason? Listen, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
the upward call, the, the, the prize that Paul is stretching forward, the reason he was apprehended on the Damascus road by Jesus Christ was that Christ would make him like himself and that he would be in resurrected glory in heaven with him forever and ever. Can you imagine what that will be like? Can you imagine not having sin? Can you imagine unhindered unchallenged full throttle worship of the one you've been made in the likeness of for all eternity Paul says I haven't arrived he knows himself I'm not perfect yet I don't fully know him I'm going to press on so that I come to that point for which Christ caught me. And the reason that he caught me was that I would be like him in glory. And I would know him intimately as he is. How will you press on? My final thought is 3, 10, and 11. Is that you're going to stay faithful in the midst of suffering because of the power of the resurrection. And you will allow it to have its work. You're not going to complain. You're not going to kick against the goads. You're not going to abandon posts. And you're not going to quit. Because the power that raised Jesus from the dead is surging in your body to give you the strength to persevere. And that's where you'll gain greater knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ until you see Him face to face. Amen? So, beloved, it's no time to rest. Press on. Press on. Go after Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us and apprehending us by your choice and putting it in our heart to go after you. Until we gain you fully. I pray, Father, for anyone here who has never bowed the knee to Christ, who has not come to taste him, that you would open their eyes and their heart and you would you would touch their spiritual palate now and they would have a taste of the all-sufficient Christ. And to that end, we pray.